Good morning. It's Monday, the 17th of July, and I'm Govindraj Ethiraj coming to you from Mumbai. Our top reports and themes of the day India's exports are falling sharply, and so are they in countries across Asia. How low edible oil prices are keeping inflation down? Street side pharmacies are fighting online upstarts. What could be the outcome? And how Wall Street's rally is getting broader. Even General Electric or GE is back. This is a core report with Govindraj Ethiraj. India's exports are falling. India's exports are crashing. June export numbers saw an alarming decline of 22% at $33 billion compared to last year's June number of $42 billion. It would perhaps be a less worrying if India was the only country to lose out, counterintuitively speaking, because it could suggest an aberration. The problem is that across Asia now, export numbers are falling and so are import numbers from major importers like the United States and even Europe. Value of goods shipped overseas from China fell about 12% to $285 billion as compared to last June, a figure coming from China's General Administration of Customs said on Wednesday, which is the biggest decline since early 2020. China's exports are roughly nine times at this point that of India. The Wall Street Journal is reporting that exports from Taiwan fell 23% in June compared with a year earlier. Vietnamese exports were down 11% and exports from South Korea too were down 6% according to official figures compiled by data providers CEIC and quoted by the Wall Street Journal. The Wall Street Journal also attributes this to Western consumers quitting spending so much on electronics, home improvements and other consumer goods after splurging during the pandemic. Instead, they have chosen to spend more of their income on eating out, traveling and other services. Economists are not expecting a revival in trade until later in the year, assuming a recession in the United States and other major economies is mild. Now, back home, one segment that's taken a hit in India is automobiles exports, which for the quarter or three months ended June 2023 was down 28% at 1.02 million versus 1.42 million for the same quarter last year. The Society of Indian Automobile Manufacturers told news agencies that all vehicle segments saw a drop in exports in the first quarter as there had been a devaluation of currencies in many destinations of exports like Africa. And that in itself is a point to note. India's biggest auto exporter, by the way, is Maruti Suzuki with around 62,000 units in the June quarter for three months, followed by Hyundai Motor India, which shipped 35,000 units in the first quarter, and Kia India, which came third at 22,000. Hyundai and Kia being siblings, you could say that one Japanese and maybe a Korean duo comprise the lion's share of Indian auto exports. By the way, two-wheeler exports were down to about 31% to around 0.79 million units in the same April to June quarter versus 1.14 million units in the year ago. All this, by the way, will be top of the mind for central bankers and finance ministers from the G20 or group of 20 countries who will gather right here in India, in Gandhinagar, in the coming week. It would, of course, be interesting to see what emerges out of these discussions for India and the world. Inflation and its interesting link with edible oil. 
India's retail or consumer price index inflation rose for the first time in five months last week to 4.81 in June 2023 versus 4.31 in May 2023. Last June, by the way, it was 7%. One reason why it went up was because of a surge in vegetable prices. And this does not include tomatoes, by the way. We also spoke in last week's core report of rising prices of pulses like urad dal and tur dal, which saw an inflation of 10.5%. Crystal chief economist DK Joshi pointed out to us that in the past five months, inflation rates of pulses had nearly doubled and they are a staple food item and an important source of protein for a vast majority of India's population. So very broadly, food prices are driving up inflation and that's something that you must be feeling too. And they included, of course, pulses, which I just mentioned, and cereals, which were up 12.7%. On the other hand, and here's where it gets a little interesting, prices of oils and fats were down, yes, down, 18%. Now, this impact is actually quite significant, as if you were to exclude it, as per the figures I could source, inflation would have been at 5.8% and pretty close to what is generally accepted as a danger zone. Now, there is no reason, of course, to exclude something, but it is indeed interesting that while prices of most commodities are rising, there are some which are going down, and in this case, edible oils, which are an equally critical component of any Indian household. As recently as early last year, prices of edible oils were skyrocketing globally and have reversed course to fall sharply, as evidenced by what consumers are seeing in India as well. Now, one reason for prices staying low is, by extension, import of edible oils is rising sharply, up almost 40% to hit 1.3 million tons in June, again compared to June last year. A little more than half of edible oil consumption in India is met by imports, roughly 56% as of a year before, of which palm oil or palmoline, as you may have heard of, contributes a further half of 54%. Now, back to the present, what is keeping edible oil prices down and thus inflation down for all of us? What are the constituents of our edible oil imports? And more importantly, how long could prices stay down and what is the outlook like? To discuss this, I reached out to Atul Chaturvedi, chairman of Sri Renuka Sugars and also president of the Asian Palm Oil Alliance. Well, let me be very clear. Anything which goes up too much too fast has the tendency to fall and fall much more than what it was gone up. Same as the cases as far as edible oil is concerned. Last year, edible oil has skyrocketed in Northwards, and that was largely on the strength of Ukrainian war, which dislocated sunflower oil supplies. And then Indonesia, in their own wisdom, decided to ban exports of palm oil from their country. And they also upped the blending as far as palm oil into biodiesel is concerned. So, all these factors actually contributed to edible oil prices going to the roof. And now, in fact, when the prices go high too much, you have a farmer response. And the farmer response has been in the sense that in Brazil, you have a crop which is closer to something like 156 million tons of soya beans. Though Argentina has been a little bit of a problem, USA also had a very good crop of soya beans. So now the supply line has improved and the Ukraine-Russian war is actually going nowhere. But in the bargain, what has happened is Ukraine started shipping oil out of Europe. And then this uh, grain deal came about, which helped improve the supply chain. So overall, situation has improved in terms of the supply chain, and that is getting reflected in the values. Coupled with all this is Indian mustard seed crop has been 
phenomenal. In fact, this year, I think uh, a mustard crop is closer to about 12.5 million tons or thereabouts. So that is also helping keep the prices under check. And now you have a situation where practically all prices are within the range of 90 rupees a kilo, give or take 5 rupees here or there. So that's a very happy situation. In fact, Lloyd, you rightly pointed out in our earlier conversation, it's probably helping uh, keep the inflation in check. You know, so there are three or four kinds of oil. There's palm oil, which we import a lot. There is mustard oil, uh, sunflower oil. So could you tell us roughly what is the consumption split in this in India? India traditionally consumes about roughly 60% palm oil. And palm oil is the biggest oil as far as the Indian consumption story goes. The next would be soya, then sunflower, and then mustard oil. In fact, soya, sunflower, and palm oil are imported. Mustard is a domestic oil. So mustard is uh, produced within the country. On a very rough basis, India is importing about close to 14 million tons. And out of 14 million tons, uh, I would say... Palm oil could be anything between 7.5 to 8 million tons, or roughly about 7 million tons, or maybe closer to 8 million tons. And the balance would be soya and sunflower. Soya largely comes into the country from Brazil and Argentina, and uh, palm oil from Indonesia and Malaysia. Right. So, what's the transmission of prices like, uh, Mr. Chaturvedi? Early May, the government had indicated to the players that you know they should be reducing prices because international prices had fallen. I'm assuming that has happened, and that's why we are seeing these figures. But is there a lag, or is it instant? No. In fact, the price uh, reflection in the domestic market generally takes about three weeks because by the time what happens in the international market, it starts getting reflected in our market in about three weeks' time. But having said that, the Indian edible oil market is very, very competitive. So nobody can keep the prices very high. And what actually happens is, the government is worried on the maximum retail price, which now gets printed at the factory level. The maximum retail price may be high, but in actual fact, the oil may be available much cheaper than the maximum retail price, or MRP as we call it. Maybe some unscrupulous retailers may be charging the consumers or gullible consumers uh, the higher MRP, whereas the company may have reduced the price. So companies uh, respond, and because they cannot afford not to respond because our markets are very, very competitive. Right. And uh, looking ahead, uh, Mr. Chaturvedi, so uh, if I can bundle two questions into one, what's your general outlook for edible oils for the rest of the year? And secondly, all the climate-related impact that we're seeing, on at least on cropping patterns in India, I'm assuming has some is having similar or somewhat similar impact elsewhere in the world. So is that something to be worried about? I won't worry too much on the El Nino front as of today. But what we are reading is that El Nino should start impacting palm oil towards the end of the year. So the real impact would actually come... Uh, next year if uh, El Nino becomes a reality. Now, as far as the prices are concerned, on the edible oil front, the world is adequately supplied. Brazil has a fantastic crop. 
and uh, Argentina, though has a lower crop, but Argentina is uh, importing from Brazil and other places, and then they are supplying to us. So there's absolutely no hassle on that front. Sunflower oil continues to remain very, very competitive. And palm oil also, about two months back, palm oil prices had actually gone through the roof and they were competing or rather not very, very attractive as far as the Indian consumers is concerned. So Indian palm oil imports had actually come down. But now palm has become much more reasonable. In fact, in the Indian context, in Indian market, you need a minimum discount for about $150, closer to that on a per ton basis, for palm to gain acceptability. And this situation has now come about. The funny part, as of today, is because of the U.S. Uh, internal issues or their biodiesel mandate, soya oil in U.S.A. is very expensive. But that is not the case as far as Brazil and Latin America is concerned. So you have a situation where soya oil is now selling much higher compared to sun oil. Though sun oil is considered as a premium oil and maybe soya is not so premium vis-a-vis -vis sun. So what is happening is soya oil is losing ground in the country and sun oil is gaining ground big time. So we do not see markets going anywhere. Our feel is that the potential of soya oil to go up is limited and prices may remain range-bound of all oils. Right, right. And that's an optimistic note to uh, end on. Thank you so much, Mr. Chaturvedi, for joining me. Thank you. Thank you very much. So there you are. Edible oil prices are low and likely to stay a little low for some time at least. Meanwhile, other prices that have fallen, but possibly escaping your notice if you've not been venturing out in the rains, are domestic airfares. And yes, it's not being really reported widely either. On the busiest sector in India, which is Mumbai to Delhi and back or vice versa, fares for an economy ticket booked roughly 24 hours ahead, which is usually a good gauge of what demand is like at peak, is between 4,200 to 4,500 one way right now. Which means you could get a round ticket for around rupees 10,000 or even less for a one-day trip or even the same day. And I am not referring to 2am flights, by the way. Roughly a month or a little more than that ago, one-way tickets on most airlines were touching 10,000 rupees or a round ticket between 16 to 20,000 rupees between Mumbai and Delhi. Now, on the Mumbai-Bangalore sector, fares seem to have crashed even more, though I am going by rough memory. Tickets are now available in and around 24 hours for a same-day round or next-day return for less than 5,000 rupees. If you get choosy, it will go up a little, of course. But once again, this is way lower than what it was a couple of months ago when round tickets were going between fifteen to 18,000 at the very least. And also remember, as we've been talking about at the core report, Go Air, an airline with around 60 aircraft, is not flying and is grounded or continues to be grounded. And therefore, we are on existing capacity, though with higher loads. Meanwhile, on international airfares, if you are bound for Southeast Asia, I'm pleased to inform you that fares are pretty competitive and low and have been so for a while. Let's say around 25,000 rupees a round ticket or less from Mumbai or Delhi to Dubai or Singapore in the next week. Or for that matter to Ho Chi Minh City, where most people seem to be headed nowadays. If you're thinking further westbound than Dubai, my suggestion, go rob a bank. Online Pharma versus Offline Pharma 
A few weeks ago, news emerged that an online pharmacy, PharmEasy, was set to raise fresh money, around 2,400 crore rupees, at a valuation that was 90% down from its peak of $5.5 billion in October 21, or less than two years. The company was backed by the usual lineup of venture capital investors ranging from Temasek and TPG Growth to Process and even Nandan Nilekani's Fundamentum Partnership. Reports say it raised about $1.1 billion. In June 2021, it even bought Thyrocare Technologies, a profitable medical diagnostics chain run by A. Velumani, a feisty and unusually candid scientist-turned-entrepreneur. This was also peak COVID, if you remember, at a time when the diagnostics sector was looking particularly good, though most diagnostics companies say business has picked up after two, possibly because more people are generally aware of their medical and health environments or situations, or just plain scared. Farm Easy appears to have done what all firms do with venture money in recent years, which is to buy other companies, in this case distributors, supply chain software and assorted services, all of which kept investors happy and the pink press buzzing. In reality, nothing seems to have gone anywhere because there never existed the bandwidth or importantly the business model to sustain it. Remember Baiju's? Now, as was the case with most of the overfunded venture ecosystem, there was money in excess and almost nothing of everything else, including the patience to actually build a business. Be that as it may, I have used some of the online pharmacies and let me tell you some of my experiences. To their credit, they have been fast. The interface is slick and the choice of medicines and pharmaceutical products vast. In some cases, stuff that I ordered would arrive in hours in Mumbai where I live. And then things started changing. First, the number of drugs that needed a prescription started rising. The process of uploading prescriptions was as smooth as I guess it could be, but it was a pain. And then someone would call from some other state or city, introduce themselves as a doctor, and then ask about the prescription and for what you needed the medicines. And then I needed more medicines to deal with some health situations. And then e-commerce did not make sense at all because it was cumbersome and delayed and some medicines would take more than two days to land up. So the 100,000 medicine stock and 22,000 PIN code delivery promise from the online pharmacy was of pretty much zero relevance to me. Now, all the pharmacists in my neighborhood would have 99% of the medicines I wanted on most days because as I have discovered intuitively over the years, what we are consuming is of course a deeper reflection of our health and disease profile which the pharmaceutical supply chain to local pharmacies keep stocked up. So back to online, it is useful to buy allied products like oral care or some other health-related supplements and the like, and maybe occasionally even for drugs, which you don't need very urgently. But for pure drugs and medicines, I for sure am not seeing a benefit, and I'm pretty sure many are not. There are other issues like margins and consumption patterns for drugs, which are not exactly consistent with other forms of e-commerce purchase and consumption. But that's a different story for another day. Meanwhile, post-COVID, the pharmacies in our area have started delivering within a few hours too. They ask for prescriptions where needed, but surely not almost for every medicine which the e-commerce sites have almost absurdly begun to. And then they too have started offering discounts, yes, with some discretion. By the way, I realize that the verification of a prescription is a good thing, but that is not a problem statement for the consumer, it is for the regulator. And if you live in a metro city like Mumbai or Bangalore, and maybe others, I'm guessing that you can count at least three to four pharmacies within 10 minutes walking distance of your residence, and that's at the bare minimum. It is possible that pharmacies like Apollo are leaning off their offline and retail store networks and also the real and verifiable diagnostics and tests they offer in their hospitals network. 
I would be wary of a thousand rupee or thereabouts test that seems to check everything in your body from lipid profiles to vitamins to diabetes and much more. So on the pure online pharmacies, I'm really wondering whether there was a business model ever or a real consumer need. The same could apply, of course, to many, many more ventures, including in edtech, where after acquiring a dozen ventures, you could become a different company and that ipso facto becomes the reason for existence. And everyone, including, of course, the investors, lives with it and justifies it furiously in retrospect. Because apart from money, there was little else to start with. Now, the offline pharmacies have had a tough time in the last couple of years. Online has obviously affected their business and had them running scared. It's likely that even now, their business has been hit more harder in some parts of the country or within cities than others. Nevertheless, they seem to have banded together in some way and are exploring how they can become of greater relevance to the consumer. To get a sense on a pharmacist's perspective, I spoke to Dr. Raj Vaidya, immediate past chairperson of the IPA Community Pharmacy Division. And I began by asking him how he saw the threat of online. Any additional business coming even to town or online will affect somebody else. And of course, the impact of online pharmacies is much greater. You see the statistics, they are rising slowly every year. So the impact is there because of their means of marketing and their means of showing how easy it is to get medicines. So over the years, they have built up this campaign and hired different uh, personalities, famous personalities to do their campaigns, showing things like it's coming to you at such an easy pace and with huge discounts. That is also the catch point that they would like to project. On discounts, now, are these discounts, because I know even offline pharmacies, you know, the local chemist stores, some of them now are giving discounts or do give discounts. So is discount something that is in a way indicator of the fact that a local chemist could have been giving better prices in the past? No, not exactly. The chemist, local chemists work on their profit structures and the margins that are being offered online. Maybe they have a catch to them, some star and some uh, thing which doesn't always give that much. But the local chemists would not have been able to give. Even if now they are giving, it is, uh, I think, in a bit to survive how to face the competition because it's not only the onlineers, it is the offline chain pharmacies which are also coming to different big cities. And they too are also offering discounts and door deliveries. It has a double impact, the online pharmacies as well as some of the chains which are offering these discounts. So the chemist, out of desperation and no other option left, trying their best to give discounts. And I don't think that is very viable even for chemists. Because the other thing is, more you try to give discounts and more you try to please the customer, from somewhere you have to try to get back the money that you are losing. So unfortunately, that could lead to malpractices. There is a possibility. Right. So in the past, it's been pointed out that maybe in terms of prescriptions, there is uh, not enough safeguard on prescriptions online. I mean, is there any evidence to suggest that something has gone wrong because of inadequate safeguards, as many offline pharmacies have said so? Yeah, so online pharmacies, there is no safeguard at all. There is no control of the drug regulators. In actuality, there is no definition or nothing defined in our country as what is online pharmacy. So it is just happened. It was allowed to happen. And now it has rampant. And it, maybe it looks like 
it is very difficult to take it back. See, there have been orders from the High Court, even from the Supreme Court. Drug controllers have issued two orders so far. The Health Minister took it up and made the orders to be given that they should not do it. But it's going on. See, implementation of law in our country, there is a lot of things lacking. It's not only in this department, but many other departments. Maybe this is another part of it. But unfortunately, here we are playing with lives. That is what is disturbing. Do you feel that uh, offline chemists have lost business in the last... Uh, I mean, one has definitely gained. And I know you mentioned that if they've gained, someone must have lost. But on an absolute basis, do you feel that offline chemists have lost business in the last few years? Yes. This is mainly from news items, from word of mouth, from people that we know. Yes, they have been reduced business quite considerably. And uh, they're trying to get discount from wholesalers bargaining and getting on sale from the wholesalers so that they can try and pass it on to the customers so that they can try and compete at least a little bit with the bigger chains and the onliners who give larger discounts. That is the attempt that they make. But uh, yes, that's the reality. Of course, it may not be across the board, but that's the general feeling. It's it's definitely has been a threat. The actually giving discounts no pharmacy ethically can advertise and say that we are giving discounts it is uh, declared as unethical but then uh, today whether it's ethics or whether it's law it's all uh, getting washed under the carpet unfortunately so if you were to look ahead uh, what do you feel offline chemists have to do to in some ways hold on to their market share or for that matter even increase it because I mean, we know that online pharmacies, many of them are going to face problems because funding is running out. They're having valuation issues and so on. And we've seen uh, at least one big instance right now. But that apart, as you look ahead, what do you feel needs to change? Yeah, that is what we also have been trying to inculcate in the pharmacies through our associations is to try and become more and more professional, offer more and more patient care services become professionalized and more knowledge and value because it's a local chemist who know their neighborhood, who know their customers, who have been knowing their families for so long. If then they can provide some value-added services like measurement of blood pressure, blood sugar, giving counseling services, labeling of medicines, giving information, instructions, and following up with their patients. All these sort of things are needed because this is something which is going on, traditionally going on. And the chemists have been doing it for so many decades. They just should try out all these things and uh, hang on. Right, uh, Mr. Vaidya, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you. Meanwhile, the Wall Street Journal has an interesting report just out which says that in the US, the line between e-commerce sales and in-person shopping is blurring as more shoppers place orders online and then go and pick up their goods rather than wait for a delivery van to reach their home. Retailers have added the service known as buy online pickup in store partly to restrain the fulfillment costs that can cut into profit margins. Costs associated with home delivery are equivalent to 10 to 15% of an e-commerce brand sales versus 2 to 3% when a truck delivers goods to stores. The Wall Street Journal says quoting Deutsche Bank research. The last mile of e-com is expensive. So having that curbside capability where the vast majority of our orders get shipped from store or get fulfilled from store that last mile cost has come down significantly to where 2019 used to be, an official from Dick's Sporting Goods said at a Bank of America consumer and retail conference a few months ago. 
Now, this may not have direct parallels with India, but there is some small connect or parallel, if you want to call it that, with pharmacies and the way we order drugs or pharmaceutical products from pharmacies and have them either delivered or actually go and pick them up. Markets get broad-based. Indian markets have been hitting new highs at almost every session now, even as investment banks are warning that valuations are stretched at these levels. The BSE Sendex on Friday, just to remind you, hit a new high of 66,160, eventually ended with a gain of 66,061, that's up 502 points. The NSE Nifty 50 hit a new high of 19,595 and ended at 19,565, up 151 points. Now, over at Wall Street, the stock market rally, which used to be more of a tech rally, is no longer just a big tech rally, says the Wall Street Journal. A few months ago, it was all about the seven largest tech companies that drove pretty much all the stock market 2023 gains. These included, of course, Apple, Microsoft and NVIDIA riding on that massive AI surge. Stocks like Apple, Microsoft and NVIDIA, by the way, have propelled the S&P 500 into a new bull market. Now, these tech behemoths have been called the Magnificent Seven. The others are Alphabet, Meta, Tesla and Amazon. These seven have been driving most of the gains in the last few years, but their contribution in some ways is a given now. What is new is the expanded profile. More than 140 stocks in the index have hit fresh 52-week highs since the end of May, such as Lowe's and General Electric, says the Wall Street Journal. It would now take wiping out the gains of the top 50 stocks in the S&P 500, including Visa, McDonald's and FedEx, to negate the index's rally this year, according to S&P Dow Jones Indices data as of Wednesday. So what this means is that it's the Visas, the McDonald's, the FedEx and General Electric, all traditional old world companies which are in some ways going to hold up or are holding up the index at this point. Now, GE is a bit of a turnaround stock, incidentally. It was given up on by many in recent years, even as its top deck saw considerable turmoil. The company has, however, strengthened its bottom line and likely its profile as well. Its total shareholder return, as per one commentary, over the last three years, which includes dividends, was at 162%. And the reason I'm talking about GE also is because GE's aerospace arm, you may recall, tied up with Hindustan Aeronautics Limited for transfer of technology to produce F-414 engines in India for the light combat aircraft Tejas MK-2. And the deal was announced during Prime Minister Modi's visit to the United States last month. That's it from me for today. I do wish you a wonderful week ahead. Do let me know any subjects or topics that you would like to see covered here. And you can reach me on govindraj at thecore.in or on LinkedIn, on Twitter. And of course, find us all the time at www.thecore.in. Have a great day. This was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in. That is www.thecore.in or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you, including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening.